Uh, good morning. My name is Matt Howell, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, so glad to have you uh, with us here on a kind of a half cold, half, I'm guessing it's warm. I don't know what it's like on this side. It was cold in the shade, but um, whether you're cold or warm, uh, we're glad to have you here this morning. And whether you find yourself coming in this morning from a position of believing the truth claims of Christianity, or if you are wrestling with the truth claims of Christianity and don't know what you believe, really, wherever you find yourself this morning, we're thankful to have you with us here at Redeemer. Well, what is Redeemer? Redeemer is a church, and what that means is we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And the way that we go about doing that, every week we gather together like this so that we can worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might rest in His great love for us. And then we get together throughout the week individually and in small groups so that we might be able to remind one another of His great love for us. And as we rest in his love and remind one another of his love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service and in doing justice and in caring for our neighbors so that we might reflect his love for us. Because we really do dream of seeing our city flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. So that's a little bit about who we are. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor as we rest remind and reflect. And in order to help us do that this Advent season, which, which you know, as you may know, the word Advent means come. And so we're exploring why is it that Jesus actually came? Why, why was it that he arrived and showed up on, on, from heaven to earth? And there's all these different places sprinkled throughout the Bible that tell you why Jesus came. Last week, we looked at a passage in Mark chapter 1 that says that Jesus came to preach. And in the passage that was just wonderfully read for us, um, we see that Jesus also came to call. We're going to explore what that means this morning. To set that up, um, some of you might know the story. My wife, Catherine, and I, we met when we were both interns with a campus ministry that you might know of called RUF. We were um, on different campuses at, at you know, different schools, and we met at this kind of national training, and I saw her from across the way, and you know, I thought, this girl's She's cute. So I did what any normal person would do, which is I prank called her. I, I, I called her up on the phone, and I pretended to be the hiring manager f- from a store called Dress Barn. And uh, she picks up the phone, and to my great surprise, she plays along. And so for an hour, we have this conversation where I'm interviewing her, and she's answering questions, and we never break character. I'm asking her questions about her strengths and her weaknesses, uh, where she sees herself in five years. Uh, I asked her, you know, what is, what is her greatest professional achievement in retail? And uh, for an hour, we have this conversation, never breaking character. And we both hang, hung up and we both, I think, realized at once, this is the person I have to marry. And uh, we were engaged like nine months later. And uh, but so he, here's, here's my question. Why in the world did I do that? Why did I call her? That was my attempt at flirting, which is really sad to say out loud. That was, you know, that was, I had a crush on this girl, and so to call her was my attempt to kind of woo her, to draw her close to me, because in a a fundamental sense, that's what calling is. When you're calling someone, you are, you're beckoning them towards you. you. There's an assumption that there's some distance. We're apart from each other. And when you call someone over, you're inviting them to come near to you. In this passage, we see that Jesus came to call, to invite, to beckon sinners to himself. So I want to look at two ideas from this passage. I want to look at the trauma 
of his calling, and then the healing of his calling. The trauma, the healing. Let's look at the trauma first. Our story picks up with Jesus seeing this man named Matthew, and he's at this tax collector's booth. Now, tax collectors back in the day were severely hated because they, were, they worked for the Romans. They collected taxes from everybody else, and they gave it to the Roman government, which was basically this enemy regime that had come in and taken over and was oppressing Israel. So not only were you funding the man, the oppressors, What tax collectors were notorious for doing was collecting more than they actually needed so that they could skim some off the top for themselves. So they were exploiting people. They were taking advantage of people. These were essentially white-collar criminals. And here Jesus comes up to this dude named Matthew, and he's at his tax collector's booth. He's on the job site. He is present tense exploiting people. And look at verse 9. Jesus calls him, this, you know, quote-unquote sinner, to follow him. And Matthew does. He gets up and he begins to follow him right on the spot. And look at what happens next. It's pretty fascinating. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, it's a total scene change. Now they're in a house. We don't know what house it is, but the other gospels tell us this was Matthew's house. So here's what just happened. Jesus just calls Matthew to follow him. Matthew follows him and then immediately invites him to come over to his house for, as you're going to see in verse 10, a dinner party. Look at verse 10. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Matthew just invites all of his buddies, which just happens to be other tax collectors and sinners. And so here's this group of this people of, you know, disrepute. They're having this dinner party. And right in the middle of kind of the sinner's club dinner fest is Jesus and his disciples. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? To eat with someone in this culture was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of approval, a way of including someone. And this blew their mind. They're like, okay, how can a rabbi, a teacher of the Torah, not only be associating with people like this, but eating with them? This, is, this was not just cringeworthy for them. This was like deeply troubling, deeply upsetting. And so look at what Jesus says, verse 12. But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That line is the doozy. This is where you see the trauma of Jesus' calling, because here's how Here's what Jesus just did. Jesus just changed how humanity gets divided up. The Pharisees divided up the world along this line of their moral religious standards. And so they drew this line in the sand and they said, okay, well, if you're, if you're religious, if you're devoted, if you're a good person, then you are in. And if you are a bad person, if you're irreligious, if you're rebellious to God, then you are out. Good people are in, bad people are out. That's how the Pharisees have divided the world. And in fact, you and I are no different. Everybody divides up the world in this way. We draw our lines in the sand and we say the good people are in and the bad people are out. We just change what we mean by good and bad. So for example, some people will say, um, well, the conservatives are in and the liberals are out. Or some people might say, well, the, the, the woke are in and the ignorant are out. Or the, uh, the non-religious people are in, and if the religious people are out. But everybody's basically doing the same thing. We draw our lines in the sand, and we say the good are in, and the bad are out, and Jesus doesn't play by those rules. Jesus completely divides humanity very differently. 
He doesn't say the good people are in and the bad people are out. Here's what he says. The needy are in and the self-sufficient are out. Look at verse 12. Those who are well have no need. The Greek word there for well simply means strong, capable, able. These are the people that are buttoned up, that, that know all the answers. They, they have it all together. They don't need any help. They're the well. There was an assassination attempt on President Reagan in March of 1981. It's pretty fascinating. You can actually like, find the YouTube footage of this. Uh, President Reagan comes out of this building that he was uh, at the speaking engagement, and he steps out onto the sidewalk, and there's this man that runs up and shoots him in the chest. And like all the security people like take down the guy, and they, they, they gather up the, you know, the president, they put him in the limo, and they rush him to the ER. Nobody really knew how badly he had been hurt. He was, you know, coughing up blood along the way to the ER. And when they finally pull up in his limo to the ER, President Reagan insisted that he didn't want anyone to help him get out of the limo and to go into the emergency room. He didn't want a wheelchair or a, or a stretcher or anything. He wanted to do it himself. And so he steps out of the limo, straightens himself up, sucks in his midsection, you know, buttons his coat, and walks into the ER like a boss. Now, here's what's so sad about that is he collapsed like 30 feet later. And it's a really sad image to me because he felt in this moment the pressure of, I've got to be buttoned up, I've got to be on, I've got to look strong, when I've been shot in the chest. If there's ever a point in your life when you have permission to be needy and messy, it's when you've been shot in the chest. But here's my point. I think that impulse runs through all of us. It's that impulse that, you know, I, I've, I've, I got this. I'm good. I don't, I don't need your help. I certainly don't need God's help. I know what I'm doing. That is the impulse of the well, of those that are well. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that what separates the church from the rest of the world is that we are the good moral people and the rest of the world is the bad wicked people. That is not what divides the church from the rest of the world. There are, I I promise you, there are a lot more moral people doing amazing things for the city of Memphis outside of the church than inside of the church. What separates us is not that we're the good ones and they're the bad ones. We are the needy ones. This is the community of the desperate. Do you know what... um, I've heard, I've, I've heard people make this attack against Christianity where they say, well, the only reason why you believe in God is because you, you need a crutch to get through life. You, um, you're, you're kind of weak, weak-willed, weak-minded, and so you need God to kind of get through life. And I want to say, yeah, bingo. That's not an attack. That's just what Christianity is. And in fact, the, the whole crutch metaphor is probably m- making it too light of a case. It's not a crutch, it's an oxygen tank, and our lungs don't work. It's not about being good or bad, it's about whether you are in touch with your need. It's about whether or not you have given up on your ability to make your life work for you. The question of Christianity fundamentally is, plain and simple, do you need Jesus? You know, there is... Um, you know what the best seasoning on food is? There is an, there is an objective answer to this. There is, there is a universal answer. It doesn't matter what culture you are from. There is a universal answer that is objectively true. You know what makes all food taste good? It's not ketchup. 
It's not ranch. It's hunger. And you know what makes food taste disgusting? Like, it just makes you want to throw up at the thought of eating any of it? Being full. It works the same exact way with God. Jesus will not be sweet to you until you are hungry, until you are empty. I think one of the reasons why so many Christians are just numb in their faith and are just spiritually bored is because we're full. We have grown content with saving ourselves. We have, we have convinced ourselves that we're the good ones, we're buttoned up, we've got all the answers. In other words, we are the well. And the trauma of Jesus' calling is he says, I did not come to call the well. I came to call those that were in need. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. So if you think that you are the well, Jesus' calling is traumatic. But there's good news in this passage too. Because Jesus says that his calling also involves healing. Healing. Let's look at the secondly, the healing of his calling. Look at verse 13. He says to these Pharisees, go and learn what this means. Quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a quote right out of the Old Testament from a book of, uh, from a book of the Old Testament called Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, it's amazing. Jesus is looking at these like Bible scholars. This is what they did for a living. It was like read and study the Bible. And he says, you should go and learn what your Bible says. You should go and read the Bible. And if you go and you look back at, at Hosea, it's pretty fascinating. Hosea was written 700 years before Jesus even showed up. And the context of Hosea was that God's people were uh, doing horrible things. They were oppressing the poor. They were taking advantage of people. Priests were murdering people. And what's so fascinating is that in the midst of all of this horrific behavior, they were very diligent to show up at church and offer their sacrifices regularly. And so here you have this picture of people that are going to church and they're praying and they're giving their sacrifices, they're giving their tithes, and yet their faith is completely disconnected from their actual life. Their real life, they're still hateful and racist and cruel and mean, and yet, but they are very diligent to show up at church. And what God says to them in, his, in Hosea is, I desire mercy not sacrifice. In other words, I desire a life of big-hearted love towards God and towards your neighbor. Not this, not this, not this cold, mechanical, sterile obedience to rules that has no connection to your actual life. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And this is what God wants to see. This is what God desires. But here's the thing is no one's doing it. And that's why Jesus quotes this in this context. He's looking at these group of people that are dividing up the world and not extending mercy. They're saying, we're the good ones, and we feel good about us, and we feel good about people in our tribe. But people on the other side of that fence, we will throw bricks at. I don't want anything to do with those tax collectors, those sinners, those people. And that's what everybody is always doing. We're not extending mercy, and God wants to see a life of mercy. And so what does he do? Jesus comes to do it. To give to life, to give to, to give to God the life that God wants to see, a life where He is extending mercy to those that are in need, mercy to those people that are at the bottom. This is why he says in verse 13, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. He's saying God desires mercy, and so that's why I am calling sinners. Now, how is calling sinners to himself an act of mercy? Well, think about this. What if Jesus said, I came to call the righteous? 
I came to call the people at the top, not the bottom. You know what that would mean for every single one of us? That means that all of us would have to start getting to work. Good grief, I better start doubling down on my praying, on my giving and being nice, and I gotta do all this stuff, and we'd start climbing and climbing and climbing, and it would be miserable, and it would be exhausting, and you would be racked with insecurity because you would never know if you were being righteous enough. Is this enough? Is this enough? Am I, doing, am I being, finally being good enough? But when Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners, people at the bottom, he sets the bar extremely low. That means he does not want you to climb up to him. He simply wants you to be willing to get low. Christianity is not about you climbing up to God. Christianity is about you being willing to bring your need to him. Are you willing to bring your need to him? I think I've told you this before, but I used to be involved in this workout group that met at 5.30 in the morning, and we would do burpees and push-ups, and we would run miles, and we would carry cinder blocks. Can you imagine me carrying cinder blocks and running and like, doing these army chants? And we would do all of this stuff, and every, every other dude in this group was just like bodybuilder, jacked, like way into it. In fact, this is not a lie. Some people showed up at the 5.30 workout as a cool down from their in, more intense workout that started at 4.30. And I'm out there tr literally trying not to die every single week as we're doing this stuff. These people were so into it, and I'm just thinking, good grief, to even keep up with this group of guys, I've got to, like, join the Marine Corps. And I don't, I don't want to become a Navy SEAL. I'm just a middle-aged man trying to work off my ice cream habit. But here's the deal. This is why Jesus doesn't say, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must become a Marine. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must become a child. Do you know what it means to be a child? It means that you are unbelievably needy. I've said it before, children are bottomless pits of need. And so when Jesus says, all it takes to enter the kingdom is you just got to get in touch with your need. Show up like a little child. But here's the thing. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But what's so surprising and ironic is that in order for God to extend mercy, there had to have been a sacrifice. God's, God is not lenient. He doesn't just let us completely off of the hook. Someone has to pay for our screw-ups and our failures. Who's going to pay for it? Think of it like this. Let's say that you, out of your own generosity and kindness, you, you decide to invite the new pastor over to your house. And I come over to your house, and I'm sitting on your nice white couch, and because you're so gracious, you decide to open up a bottle of well-aged Merlot and serve it to me, which would be a, a very kind, great thing for you to do. And let's just say, as I'm enjoying this gift of yours, I accidentally spill the Merlot all over your nice white couch. The damage has been done. There's no cleaning that up. So someone has to pay for it. Either you're going to pay for that and buy yourself a new couch, or you're going to make the new pastor pay for it and buy, for you, buy you a new couch. The damage is done. Once damage is done, somebody has to pay for it. And Jesus was presented with this option. You can make God, or Jesus, you can make these people pay for their own sin, except you will be disconnected with them forever. Or you can go pay for it, and you will get to be with them. And Jesus chooses option two every single time. I will go and I will pay for the crimes of their sin. I will bear the punishment that they deserve because I cannot bear to see myself apart from them. I so desperately would rather be with them that I'm willing to give up everything that I have in order to do so. 
That is the healing of Jesus' calling because in it you see that he loves sinners like us. He wants to draw close to us. The gospel isn't him lobbing pep talks down from heaven. The gospel isn't him, him dropping instruction manuals on us on how to behave better. The gospel is he came to draw us to himself because he was desperate to be with us, to have us near him. That's the good news. He wants to be around people like us. Now, if Jesus was willing to call someone like Matthew, who's a white-collar criminal, that shows that he's, 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 he wants to, it doesn't matter to him. He's calling all of us right now to himself. And the question is, will we respond? He's, he's calling alcoholics to himself. He's calling workaholics to himself. He's calling porn addicts to himself. He's calling self-righteous preachers like me to himself. He's calling the lazy and the greedy and the angry. He's calling people to himself. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through, no payment required. Everything's already been taken care of. You don't have to clean yourself up or button yourself up in order to come to him. In fact, your very burden is what qualifies you to come. Your very guilt is your ticket through the door. He calls sinners to himself, and all you need is need. The question is, will you respond to the invitation? Let me pray. Father, thank you that you want to be around people like us, people that can't get our act together, people that are overwhelmed with our life, people that do fail and screw up and do things that we wish we wouldn't do over and over and over and over again, and you want to be close to and near to us so much so that you would come and call us to yourself. Father, give us the eyes to see that you are more gracious than we thought you were. You're way more merciful than we thought you were. I pray that that would compel us to come towards you, even in our doubts, even in our sin, even in our failures, that we might taste and experience your kindness and your love in a fresh way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.